the other day, a case was made as to why Wellington should not be the capital of Aotearoa, and the case being made that Hamilton might be a better bet. Countries do move their capital, Ankara to Ankara to Istanbul, Rio de Janeiro to Brasilia. It's not a birthright. Growth has slowed in Wellington. The Wellington region was recently overtaken by Canterbury as the second largest regional GDP. It's also the most earthquake hazard exposed area in New Zealand with seven active faults. Then you had Peter Dunn. He wrote a um, a big defence of Wellington. But others say, actually, maybe it's time to start having that conversation with us as Dave Armstrong. He's a uh, columnist and long-time Wellingtonian. Kia ora, Dave. Kia ora, Wallace. Welcome uh, uh, from the capital. It's yes. a beautiful day here. I think perhaps we should look at moving it because it's way too hot in Wellington. <laughs> the writer Charlie Mitchell suggested that the word that could best describe the city now was languishing, quote, unquote. Oh, yeah. What would Another, you say? Yeah, look, I, I, I must say I greatly enjoyed Charlie's article and, and it got the royals off off the the front page, which was good. Um, But, yeah, I don't... I mean, I'm, again, so used to articles about uh, how, you know, books are finished and are never going to be there again. Classical music's dead, and that, uh, even though 17 and 19-year-olds are embracing it, and Wellington is dying and and has got a terrible future. And, I, you know, it's... I just don't, don't believe it. It chooses to be small and hostile, he also said. I thought, yeah. that was a, I thought that was a bit mean. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, you live there. It, it hasn't grown a lot. Its projections are for massive growth and that, in population. And that's the difficulty of being a Wellingtonian is you look around and it's not getting that much bigger, but then everyone tells you it's going to get massive. And some of the projections in the past um, uh, have been a little inaccurate. So there's a bit of truth in that. But is it a hostile place? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I think sometimes it can get a little bit sort of in, and we we refuse to acknowledge that. For example, Auckland had a really good art scene for a while. Um, that Auckland has great restaurants. So you know we can be a little bit uh, insular, but I wouldn't call it hostile. Okay. Now, before we go to Chris, he'll have a view on this. And uh, and Ella, uh, Dawn is so strong on this. She's writing a letter to uh, her daily paper. She <laughs> uh, and she's got in touch with us first. She says, "Look, uh, Hamilton is a no-brainer. It's growing." It's close proximity to the super city. Uh, there's a high-speed train. So you've got everything now that you want in Hamilton, including great playgrounds and a fantastic botanical gardens. What say you, Wellingtonian? Look, that, that's it. Are you asking Chris? No, you first. Oh, okay. Look, yes, all those things about Hamilton are true. I wouldn't call it fast rail compared to some countries. All our rail in New Zealand is slow and we need to invest in it. And probably the best place to start investing um, in rail is a quick, is a quicker line between Hamilton and Auckland. That's a, that's a great idea. However, and it's true that it's doing well economically, but, you know, as Very a capital, well. I, I'm not sure. I mean, they had to take down the statue of Mr. Hamilton uh, last year because he was such an embarrassment. So there's uh, not that the Duke of Wellington's without blemish, but he did beat Napoleon. Um, so they'd have to rename it Kitty Um That it was sort of started... Uh, Which was a positive, so, isn't it? All right, now you stay there, Dave. Yep. Let's bring in uh, Chris Finlayson.
Well, I thought Hamilton was named after the first United States Secretary of the Treasury, so I've learned something this afternoon from Mr. <laughs> Armstrong. Um, I have full knowledge for you, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Uh, basically, I think the proposal is imbecilic, but it, through the uh, silliness, there is an important question that does need to be addressed, and it relates to earthquakes, that if we got thumped very yeah. badly, what sort of... Uh, steps would need to be taken to preserve the administrative infrastructure of the country. Uh, and so that is an important question and one worthy of consideration. But the idea that we move the capital to Hamilton the way Lenin moved the capital from Petersburg to Moscow doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But we do need to consider uh, the worst case scenario. Stay there, David Ella. Well, I think there's merit in having a capital of a small country like New Zealand somewhere in the middle. There's that um, because it, it, it is, you know, halfway between the other bits and pieces of the country. Um, and I've been to a few capitals in my life and they do tend to have an unusually large number of overpaid, underemployed bureaucrats. And I'm not sure that anywhere else in the country deserves that. <laughs> I mean, another aspect, I guess, Dave, is, I mean, of course, as Chris said, not top of the agenda, but having that conversation, there would be less of the Auckland versus Wellington sentiment. Auckland leaders often say, don't they, uh, including Wayne Brown, you know, we don't want decisions made in Wellington. You might have more seamless policy making if you knew that MPs sat just 90 minutes away from the Hamilton Expressway. Possibly, although Wellington's a good, you know, it's a good beat up if you're not in Wellington. Ah, oh, Wellington aren't listening and, and, and things like that. Um, the other thing too is that, is that you know, moving the capital is a great excuse to um, sort of get rid of people. So there could be some some benefits in that. Yeah. My father, my father was actually um, involved in left wing politics in the 1950s, and he worked for the DSIR, and they wanted to get rid of him. So they didn't, they couldn't fire him, but they just said, "Look, we're transferring you to Hamilton." And he immediately changed careers and became a uh, became a school teacher and influenced thousands of children. So, so if Adrian all puts interest rates up, we just say, Adrian, look, we're moving to Hamilton. He'll resign and get a good cushy job in a bank, and we won't have a, 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 a depression. Oh, kia ora, Dave. Nice to have you here. So um, uh, but before you go, 30 seconds, uh, in terms of um, – because there's a lot of this, isn't there, that Wellington uh, has lost something – we don't know what it is, something in that is not cool anymore. What do you say to that? Is it just absolute rubbish or is there something there? I find it, I, I, I hate the word cool and I agree yeah. with the people that say a cool place doesn't tell other people how cool it is. And there are no doubt challenges and Charlie in his article quite rightly says three waters is a challenge and housing is a challenge. But you know, that, that doesn't make uh, the city a terrible place to live. If I look at the faces of people around Wellington on the waterfront and places, they're not in the terminal depression, you know. And, and I'm yeah. sure the people in Hamilton aren't either. There's some great things in Hamilton. But, but this idea that we're, you know, slowly sliding into the tree, <laughs> into the sea, I think is wrong. Is wrong. Good on you, Dave. All right, thank you. That's Dave Armstrong there, uh, Wellingtonian. Uh, 18 to 5, the panel we have, Chris Finlayson and Ella Henry. Did you want to say uh, something on that, Chris? No, no, no. no. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, I do think the major problem with Wellington is that it's had a lousy city council for far too long. We probably haven't had a decent mayor since uh, Kerry Prendergast, and its um, governance does matter.
Mm, back to leadership, eh? Now, picture this. Another topic. I was walking along St. Helia's Beach uh, the other day and a uh, little junior spots something on the sand, these little plastic balls. He spotted one. I picked it up. It was like a little polystyrene ball. And I was sitting on the sand with him and within the square metre, I just picked up about 20 of these polystyrene balls. I was astonished. I was actually amazed that this inner city beach had so much microplastic. I thought, I want to talk about this. These little microplastics are called noodles. They've also washed up on Waihe Beach pretty significantly. There are millions of them. And sustainable Waihe Beach co-founder Pip Coombs was at a beach cleanup held at the beach today. Joins me now. Kia ora, Pip. Oh, kia ora. How are you? Oh, well, I'm well. I was just amazed. Once I... Just look down at the sand. One often doesn't, you know. You sit back and you, 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 you look at the sky or you go for a swim. But actually, if you look down into the sand like little Virginia did, oh my gosh, I wasn't prepared. I could have picked up a thousand of them. Oh, easily. And uh, yeah, we've we've had the um, easterly swells from Cyclone Hail. And as a result of that, going down actually onto Waihi Beach, we've got 10 kilometres of pristine sand. It was a real eye-opener. We were talking not just nurdles, we're talking 50% micro and uh, nanoplastics as well as some macroplastics. And then we're talking the microplastics, the plastic nurdles, the pre-production plastic pellets, um, which have come in on shore. And as you say, unless you look closely, you don't see them. They're clear. They blend in. But when you look closer, it's pretty much a horror story, um, a horror story down here at the moment. Next time you're at a beach, you listen to this, just take a look. Take a look down by your feet. And uh, Ella, it's not all driftwood and pebbles, I tell you. No, and the one most worrying thing, I read a report a couple of years back that, you know, plastic has been found at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the lowest point on planet Earth. I think it's like 7,000 metres down. There's plastic there. So we as a species have managed to pollute every corner. And and the worst thing is, you know, people who are struggling financially are having to buy clothes made out of not natural fibres. But every time you wash those clothes, little bits of nylon and plastic come out in the wash. So whatever we do, we're damaging Papa Tuanuku. Stay there. Uh, Pip, you got a question or a thought for uh, Pip, Chris? Oh, not really, just an expression of horror. And I, I think about um, the excellent work that Andrea Vance did uh, on Henderson Island, which again, Ella, is one of the remote, most remote parts of the earth. It's part of the the uh, Pitcairn group and it's covered in plastic. So, um, and, and after the Rena uh, went aground a decade ago, um, the beaches of the Bay of Plenty were, were suffering. So I just uh, think that we've just got to have zero tolerance. And I, I recall that there was uh, a similar problem on Petoni Beach some years ago. Right. Seemed someone had just simply flushed them down the toilet and then they ended up on the beach. Uh, it's just incredibly unfair to one's fellow citizens, and we just need to stamp it out. And I, frankly, the time for talking about this issue was over. Well, so on that, where's the starting yep. point? As a listener, okay. what, 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 what's a good starting point for us all? Right. right. So, so for we're talking 
strictly nurdles at the moment, which um, are pr produced offshore. They come in um, uh, internationally on shipping containers. Um, if you have a look at the Express Pearl in 2021 in Sri Lanka, it wasn't the three, 350 tons of fuel that would spill over onto the coral reefs and destroy the fishing industry. It was the 87 shipping containers of nurdles that were on board that leached, oh. destroyed the fish families. Fish, uh, over 20,000 families um, lost their livelihood. Um, the coral reef, the, the marine life, the shorebirds, the seabirds ingested these. There's a huge impact. As we said, the arena as well was second largest. Um, this was the largest um, international disaster. Rena second largest $700 million cleanup. We can't guarantee that these nurdles are from the arena. However, we need checks and balances. We need control over how these um, plastics are imported into New Zealand and, uh, and internationally to ensure this type of disaster doesn't happen. And they're washing up all over New Zealand. They really are, not in such great numbers. So, you know, we need to have a look at, at one of the biggest issues. And then the, the second issue is us as consumers and how much plastic mm. we consume. 31 kilograms of plastic packaging each year every New Zealander consumes. Um, right. And we only re recycle about 5.5 kilograms. So there's a massive deficit there. Yeah. Hey, kia ora, Pip. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Uh, Pip Coombs yeah. there, uh, Sustainable Waihe Beach. And there you are just pointing at a, uh, no doubt, reused uh, plastic bottle there as a drinking uh, water. I've got one too in my bag there, Ella. But uh, nonetheless, hey, do actually do do have a look. Next time you're on a beach, just have a look where you're sitting. Uh, you might be surprised how much of those little polystyrene-like balls you will find. To this, I, I just loved your feedback this afternoon on this. Uh, by the way, Ella Henry and Chris Finlayson with me today. Loving your company. Have you ever done an evening class that had a big impact on you? Even a career change. Ceramics, cooking, dried flower arranging. A great article in The Guardian about this. There was Clara, a teacher who did a four-week course at a flower school, now a self-employed florist. Benata, a pathologist, did an evening course in cooking, now runs a West African food restaurant. With us is Gary. Welcome, Gary. Kiora, Wallace. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Okay, tell us about your night school experience. Yeah, well, my uh, wife partner, at the time we had a few marital difficulties after seven years and there weren't the support systems then, but our family doctor had a colleague who worked at Carrington Hospital who was interested in couples work and we went and saw him for a couple of visits and one of the things he recommended to us as a couple was we actually needed to do a basic 101 communications course and he recommended the one through Mount Albert Ross School. I think it was high school at the time and we went and did that, and from memory it was a six-week course, and it just changed our whole relationship. It changed the way I interacted with other people. Um, the thing that was tripping up us was we weren't sharing our expectations. We had disastrous holidays, <laughs> ended up in fights and arguments, mm. and from doing that course we learned that we just had to tell each other what our expectation was, and uh, we try and keep doing that all the time. And um, been a few hiccups on the way. I think it's 43 years this year, but uh, yeah, um, yeah. This, I, I, I wasn't expected different. to get a get get a call like this. I mean, this is a night class that literally changed your life. Oh, it did. Yeah, 
only two courses, that course and the other one I'd give a lot of credit, both for me, because I was there personally, but also a huge influence on my uh, wife was uh, Outward Bound course. I did an adult Outward Bound course all within a few months of those those two oh. courses happening. What do you make of this, Alan? That communications course was, well, we ended up doing uh, pre-marriage education um, for about 14 years through the Catholic Church, and I didn't do it from a religious point of view. I did it from a, people should know these skills before they get married. We've got a um, panel here, Ella. Uh, well, I, I didn't so much do an eye class, but I did an adult education course 37 years ago. Um, Auckland University had a new start program for people like me who'd been turfed out of school at 15 with no qualifications whatsoever. 37 years ago, that transformed my life. Um, it gave me a career. It gave my whole family an, an idea that you could go to university because I was the wow. first in my entire family to go. And I'm living testimony to the theory if you rattle around a university long enough, they will give you a job. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's lovely to uh, have you here, Gary. So 36 years ago, you do a Mount Roskill School night school uh, to help with your relationship with your wife. And how's all that going? The relationship with the wife? Yes. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, so uh, I've I've had my midlife crisis and a few other uh, misdemeanors in, in time, but we've managed to stay together and work through. In fact, um, just like uh, Ella, you know, I did an adult education course as part of my career development. And, uh, you know, um, I left school at 15. I got told to look for a job. Uh, so my parents didn't worry about me. Well, you know, I went on through that outward bound course, through the good communications, extending it into my professional life as well. So, you know, I had to retire a couple of years ago with cancer, but. Um, you know, I ended up with a master's degree in emergency management and advanced leadership, and um, my wife went on to do a PhD in her counselling field. So it's had a huge influence. Amazing. All right. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Gary. Now with us is Jackie. Uh, are you there, Jackie? I am here. What, what did you do? Uh, I went to the local sign language class at the community education at the high school back in 1995, I think it was. And uh, it just led forth to other things. I went and trained to be an interpreter. In fact, there were two interpreters came out of that single night class. And then worked as an interpreter for a while. Then we went and worked as volunteer service abroad and had the privilege of documenting the signs of some Daphne Vanuatu people and something I would never have thought I'd end up doing. And then did my master's thesis on that after a lot of encouragement from various people. And then went and worked where I do now is uh, with people who are deaf blind. That's extraordinary, Jackie. Uh, what and how adult education, where it takes you, huh? Look at you. I'd love to go to a night class now to learn some German, but they don't seem to be really available out here. Good on you, Jackie. Thanks thanks for your time. Thanks for your time. So that's uh, Gary and Jackie. What about you, Chris, ever taken a night class? Yes. I recall um, I had a sabbatical from my law firm in 1990 and I wanted to go to Russia. And I went to night school and studied Russian every Thursday night for six months. It's a beautiful language. And once you get past the Cyrillic alphabet, 
and um, work work that out. It frankly wasn't too hard. It's uh, then I took myself off to Russia, and I could recognise words like Dom Kanigi, the House of Books, and other such things. And there are a lot of words that come from French following the Napoleonic invasion. So uh, I learned a lot. But I suppose it's not politically correct to say that Russian is a beautiful language. It's just a shame that, uh, that Putin. Uh, leaves uh, the country with actually, abundant resources and yet uh, he is a thug. If my memory serves me right, weren't you part of the government that cut funding for adult community education? Where, oh, not, wasn't that, not wasn't that for, you? Not for Russian and German, but for cake cutting and for, um, you know, painting butterflies on no, cakes. No. And stuff like that. I, I think that there was a lot of stuff like that that frankly was was pointless. Needless to and, say, and, yeah. and Holly made the right decision there. But 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 did you? Because you can hear the passion. Whatever it takes. I mean, this communications course at Mount Roskill night. You know, stuff like that. It's important to people, Chris, and you cut it. Well, it's going. The communications course is going, Wallace. Mm. And Holly made some decisions 15 years ago. It's amazing how people always want to hold the National Party to account years and years later, but they never want to hold the Labour Party to account for its housing cock-ups after six years. But anyway, I suppose that's what you expect of Radio New Zealand. No, 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 I'm just just saying, I'm just saying, Chris, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. (laughs) Look, uh, finally, on the programme, it's a very small gesture that is making a big difference. An Auckland barber business has been giving free haircuts to the homeless. It's a small way of giving back to the community. Caleb Hecke and his colleagues at Kirkwood Barbers in Mount Wellington has been cutting hair for the homeless for the last couple of years. Caleb, kia ora. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Tell us how this works, Caleb. What have you been doing? Uh, so, so I've been working at Kirkwood's Barbers for about three years now, and um, ever since I've been at the barber shop. Um, they've taught me a lot about giving and giving back to the community and helping people that are less fortunate. So it's just something that I've thought was really cool, and it's why I've continued to stick with the barbershop. And so we've um, we've continued to expand on that by um, going out into the streets and helping homeless people through giving them free haircuts and just helping them out with whatever they may need as a barbershop. What drives you to do it? Sorry, could you repeat that? What drives you? to do it just just um just just being able to help people just being able to help people that are in a um a a less fortunate position than us and um and just the importance of of making the world a better place I think that's absolutely wonderful. And always remember, you know, the word manaki in Māori means generous, but actually the founding principle of that is manaaki. We express our mana when we are kind and generous, mm. and that comes back to us. So ngamahi kiakwe. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, stay there, Caleb. We've got another panel. Uh, Chris on the line. Your thoughts or questions here on this, Chris? No, I think it's... Uh... Wonderful. I just don't. I just hope you don't cut mullets for them. <laughs> hey, I've 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 been asked to, to cut eyebrows off on the street. So you know, whatever the customer requests, I, I have to. to I know, we've got to draw a line on mullets. It's becoming a disease. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with Chris on that. I'll actually, Kate, yeah, make, make sure that <laughs> um, there was one pretty incredible moment when you helped 
reunite a family. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, our team, we were out doing community cuts, and this was uh, about a week ago. I went into the city, just in Auckland CBD there, and I seen a, a young man lying on the bench who, who was obviously, you know, in a, in a tough position. Um, so I approached him and I asked him if he would like a free haircut and to share a bit about his story. So um, he was he was more than happy to get a, a haircut. So uh, we started um, talking, and then I, I come to find out that he was in jail for about 10 months, and he had just come out of jail, and that's why he was out on the streets. And um, so I posted a story to social media, and the, the video went quite viral around the country. Uh, after that, I had a few of his family members reaching out to me, oh. asking me where he had been, and that they haven't seen him in years, and um, and I was surprised to see his video and, and to see where he was. Hey, Caleb, wonderful stuff. It's an honour having you on the programme. That's Caleb Hecker, and a wonderful programme with Ella Henry, Chris Finlayson. Thank you for your time. I'm back tomorrow.